to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly, episode 145, recorded on April 29th of 2021, the Photo Geekery Show. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I'm Don Kamarechka, the main host, and we just geek out about photo stuff on a weekly basis. Um, and I almost always have a guest in the co-pilot chair this week uh, to geek out on all sorts of things from lenses to politics and everything in between. Uh, I have Martin Bailey uh, in that seat. Martin, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Don. It's nice to be back on your show. Always great to have you. And, you know, I, I mentioned politics, and that's one of the stories. You usually don't uh, kind of ride the political vibes too strongly, but I think that's one that we needed to cover. I almost cut it from the lineup, but we'll, we'll, mm. we'll get there when the yeah. time comes. No, I, I um, think it's a good story. It's worth uh, looking at. I think it is. I think it's uh, a, a good to discuss. Um, yeah. But before we get into all that and all the stories that, uh, that we have on the table today, uh, what, what's new with you? It's been a while since we've chatted. It's yeah, it's been a few weeks. We were in the uh, the Chicago live room after. Yeah, that was fun. After that was fun. You you blew everyone away with all of your gadgets. It was <laughs> it was it was a fun chat. Um, I I've I've got to tell you, I have been messing around. I know that you don't use the video, but I've been messing around with um, a microscope and just got an adapter to fit my Canon EOS R5 onto the microscope. And I'm having a lot of fun with that stuff. So I've... Uh, what, what kind of things are you shooting? Uh, I mean, I, I've done microscope setups myself, so I'm very curious. Yeah, well, part of it was inspired and influenced by your book, your latest book, which I had the pleasure to review recently. And you got those little um, microscopic... Um, what is it? The... The micrometeorites, in, yeah. yes, yes. And I, I, I know that I need a different type of microscope for that. I've actually, I've got two. One here on my desk behind me already, and the other one arriving probably tomorrow or the next uh, day. But um, with the one I've got here, which is a light field, um, you know, it's, it, so you've got a slide, and the uh, you have higher magnification but everything has to be prepared on a slide before you can see and it needs to be at least partly transparent for light to get through it right so i've been doing like uh, little slices of things and trying at the moment still because i i the first time i've ever looked through a microscope i'm 54 years old the first time i've ever looked through a microscope was last friday so i've got a <laughs> lot of learning to do um, well and you know i had a slides. toy microscope I had a toy yeah. microscope as a child, and yeah. it was moderately interesting. They had some yeah. prepared slides of some, like, uh, you know, animal, like, yeah. tongue cell from a fox or whatever. Okay, we'll throw that in <laughs> yeah. there, see what that looks like. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, but beyond that, it really didn't interest me. And so I went decades before I put uh, uh, put my uh, my eyes and my lens uh, through a microscope mm. as well, just to, to see what that would look like. And yeah. I mean, I've done macro photography for years. It's, yeah. it's not like I wasn't curious about, uh, you know, the, 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 the small world. Yeah. But I had been using standard camera optics. And as soon as mm. I started exploring what microscope objectives could do, mm. uh, number one, it gets really difficult. Uh, it's, it's not an easy <laughs> thing. Uh, yeah. But it can also give you more detail and more resolving power than standard mm. uh, camera optics can. Yeah. So it's a lot well, of fun to explore. I love the the way you were doing it and you explained in your book. Um, and that was sort of, for me, I, I'm not as inventive as you and that. So I've, I've actually just, I've got a 
the the light field or the the regular compound microscope behind me the one that's arriving is um a what is it uh, uh the name has just got escaped me a stereo microscope so that one i can actually i can see down to like um 90 times magnification but it's in 3d it's like two it's got two lenses on it and looks down at the subject that you have all lit and everything and prepared so it's so going to be a lot of fun now what you got to do is you've got to shoot that in stereo. Uh, you've got to hook two cameras up to that thing. You know, I could if I if I re- got two of these things and put them both into the eyepieces, I could do that. Um, but when you they're they're actually they're not um, they're trinocular, so they've got two eyepieces so that you don't get eye strain, and one camera port on on the that goes like pretty much directly above the the. Um, column of right. light that comes up and so the when you when you use the camera port you get you don't get the stereo image but it's it's going to be a lot of fun it's a big learning curve and i'm having i'm already having a lot of fun so good one stuff. thing that you should experiment with with that mm. uh, is uh making your own uh cross polarized uh crystal specimens and mm. this is something i talked about in the book as well where um you can my favorite thus far in my experiments is uh, citric acid Mm. which is easy to get from, I mean, I just bought a bag of it as powder off Amazon. I'm sure health food stores will sell Mm. it because it's, uh, I think it's a preservative um, that they sell it as. Um, And just mix some of that in with water, maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, um, isopropyl alcohol if you have it, just because it evaporates a little bit faster and Mm. uh, the citric acid is still soluble within there. You're basically Mm. just making uh, a solution that has a bunch of that stuff dissolved. Mm. And and how much is enough? Uh, typically, I would just dump in too much, mm. and then uh, <laughs> the the thing is, if if it's too much, then it will hit its maximum saturation point, and anything that can't be dissolved in the liquid will just settle on the bottom. And mm. so that's how you know you've hit that critical point is just by putting too much in. Um, <laughs> and then you take a little pipette or eyedropper, or you know, just even soak it into a paper towel and squeegee it onto a piece of glass or mm. microscope slide mm. uh, and then let it evaporate. And yeah. uh, it, because as soon as it hits that saturation point and goes a step beyond it, then the crystals can no longer, um, uh, or the, the, the citric acid can no longer be dissolved in the uh, liquid and thereby it starts to crystallize. Mm. And so you get these beautiful patterns mm. of, of crystals that when you cross polarize, which is a really easy thing to do i mean mm. i'm assuming martin you have at least one polarizing filter in, in I, your kit. i've got a few yeah you've got a few so um what i would typically do is i just take an led flashlight and put mm. a polarizing filter in front of that uh and then uh you know if you if you're using a microscope setup per se you might mm. be a little bit more constrained in your limitations but your mm. light field microscope it already has the light coming up through right. it so you could just stick a polarizing filter in front of that yeah and then put another one on top of the subject mm. uh and in opposition you will get the most beautiful um mosaics of mm. of, of crazy colors that you've yeah. ever seen my wife doesn't like me doing these because yeah. she's a very accomplished abstract artist oh, that oil yeah. paint right <laughs> and i know what you yeah i've seen the so, photos that you're saying it's they're very abstract and beautiful and so uh, she she looks at those and she thinks, okay, well, it, it would take me like a week of very hard work to come up with anything remotely close to this uh, based on my own sensibilities and imagination. Uh, and here I am just setting up a dozen microscope slides at night before I go to bed uh, and then checking them in the morning and there you have it. 
So uh, there's lots to explore there, though. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, and and talking about optics and new ways to see things, I guess that I guess we can go into our stories uh, yeah. for the day. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of lens news, and, mm. and we're not going to cover every one of them in uh, you know in fine detail, but I will go over the list of them right now. Uh, the sort of the biggest one on everybody's radar should be the Sony FE 14 millimeter F 1.8 GM mm. lens, mm. Um, which is uh, a night landscape photographer's dream lens to, to have that in your camera bag, $1,600 and all of the special uh, optic elements in there uh, that Sony could possibly throw in. It seems like it's as best engineered as it could be. Um, but that's not it. Uh, there's a really interesting play here. Cosina has announced the uh, 28 millimeter F2 Ultron vintage line lenses, mm. which look just like the vintage lenses of, you know, decades past, mm. um, you know, before they were kind of tacky and plasticky looking in the 80s, but mm. they still had that really nice feel. I guess it's kind of like cars, right? Cars of the 1980s were really nothing to remember. Mm. Um, but you go back to the 60s and 70s, and uh, there was something there. Same thing for lenses. But they have modern optics inside, mm. uh, 10 elements in seven groups, and it's just a, a modern uh, design that looks... Um, uh, antiquated, which there could be some merit for that. Not to be uh, underdone by these guys, um, Metacon Speedmaster uh, 35mm f0.95 Mark II is now available in Micro Four Thirds. Tamron has announced an APS-C 11-20mm f2.8 for the APS-C size and a full-frame 150-500mm f5-f7 to f7, uh, 6.7 zoom lenses for the Sony E-mount and Sigma has launched a completely rebuilt 35mm f1.4 art lens for the mirrorless platforms. Hmm. Wow. Um, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here, Martin. Uh, hmm. I mean, I have too many lenses as it is, but some of these are enticing to me. You know, I would hmm. really like a, a super fast, extremely wide angle lens to do astrophotography images at night. Um, 35 millimeter is a great runaround lens, especially with small children, and that's wonderful too. But even having a uh, an f0.95 lens, which I I've never actually owned a lens of, of that, uh, speed, hmm. uh, and to have one on, uh, say my Lumix GX nine or uh, any other micro four thirds body could be an interesting uh, piece hmm. of kit. So what do you think about all this? Do we, as photographers collectively have too many lenses? Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts? I, I think, I mean, it depends obviously on, on the photographer, but I, I've had, and, got rid of probably way too many lenses over the years. Um, I, I have a, a rule for my, I've got a lens cabinet down there. We get really humid summers here. So I have to keep everything in a humidity controlled cabinet um, when I'm not using it, of course. And, Smart move. Um, and, I, and that's why you, you see a lot of old lenses that you find at garage sales and they got fungus and mold mm -hmm. and all sorts of stuff growing in them because they didn't do what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I had one a few, probably 20 or so years ago and it it cost more than the lens to get it clean so i yeah. figured okay time to get a cabinet um and i so i mean yeah i've i've had a lot of lenses over the years and i've generally for me um we've got a really good second hand market here in tokyo and so when i'm going to buy and upgrade a lens say canon comes out with a, a, a mark ii of the same lens or something 
I can generally get back around between 50 and 60% of what I paid for the lens, sometimes more. And so it's not too difficult to, to warrant the, the upgrade. Um, but I, I've, I've had some lenses, and I, I mentioned my, my rule that I have is if I don't use a lens for one year, I sell it. Um, and the only, yeah. the only lens that I didn't do that with for the longest time was the Canon 85mm 1.2 lens. And that was just because it was a beautiful lens. But when Canon came out with the EOS R and then I've now got the R5 um, and the RF mount, I decided it was time to go for the, I, I went back to what I'd originally wanted, which was the 50 millimeter 1.2 because it doesn't have the problems that the EF mount used to have. So I, I buy, you can, you can hear it. I'm, I'm, I'm a lens freak. I'll buy them. <laughs> but I, I generally don't buy things that I don't need, and it's it's especially these days when you know revenue's down and everything. You have to question your buying decisions more than ever. And I, yeah, I mean, so I, I've got a relatively lean uh, lens cabinet at the moment. You did mention something uh, quite key, though, is that, um, and I think a lot of photographers are thinking along the same lines is that if you're buying into a mirrorless platform, uh, you're going to take over, you know, your existing lenses via adapters or what have you. But if you were holding off on, uh, on upgrading them, uh, mm. or exchanging them for something else, well, now there's less of a reason to hold off because, mm. uh, you know, there might be more of an advantage to, to buy in, uh, and basically invest in that new platform that your, your camera body is and just kind of get everything along the same lines. And I've got adapters, Mm. Uh, to put uh, old M mount lenses on the on the L mount because I'm I'm shooting with uh, the Lumix full frame cameras, mm. but uh, and EF to to L mount as well. But as, as soon as a lens is going to be available, like if there is a high magnification macro lens mm. from any company uh, mm. that's available natively on the L mount, mm. um, I I will get rid of my Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens mm. because. Actually, I don't even know if I can get rid of it because it's so beaten up and, <laughs> and barely functional. I don't think I'd be able to get anything for it. At one yeah. point, it was dropped, and the lens hood, which is one of the only lenses in, in at least Canon's lineup, it has a screw-in lens hood um, mm. because it actually goes inward, it's a chameleon, not outward. Isn't it? Um, yeah, and so yeah, it does kind of look like a chameleon eye. Uh, but the uh, it, it it fell right on on the filter threads. And so the lens hood is now permanently attached. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I guess I could get it repaired, but at that mm. point, what is it really worth to get that fixed and mm. then sell it? And now it's, it's now its own unique little creation um, mm. that will probably just forever sit on my shelf for the years that we've spent together. Mm. Uh, but you, you know, they don't fetch a lot. They, as, as much as we both, and as many people love that MP, the, the 65, it's that, the second hand though the resale value is relatively low it's it's for me it, it was like you know what i've just had so much fun with this lens i'm never going to sell it so that's that's an, another exception to the rule well and that lens debuted in 1999 like it's not yeah, it's yeah. not a new optic and it's still current right. uh because there's no need for autofocus or image stabilization mm. or any of the advances that mm. uh, that modern lenses do have and if canon or anybody else produces a new version of that uh then that would be wonderful mm. my my fear and this is a fear that I have, and probably only me, is that Canon will make will be the one to make a successor to it, and it will be uh, RF, 
and I don't have an RF camera. And you can't uh -huh. adapt from one mirrorless platform to another, uh -huh. uh, at least not easily. You, I'm sure you could come up with an adapter, but you would lose infinity focus. But in that one instance, it doesn't matter. Infinity focus is not part of the equation. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure I would find a way. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, th these lenses and, and the fact that they're all coming out at, at such a, a, I don't know, a, an instantaneous time. Like everybody is just saying, okay, this is lens week. Mm. Uh, we're just going to put everything on the table. I found kind of curious, but mm. I, I also think, you know, especially the Cosino one. And if, if anybody's curious to see what these lenses look like, uh, they're in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Um, that it, it's, unusual because it's got like a timeless type of feel to it mm. um in, in the sense that it's an old looking lens with modern optics it's like it's designed to stand the test of time mm. uh are at least for me i'm thinking i'm looking at all of my camera gear and i've got i've got weird trick lenses like this uh pinhole uh lens for micro four thirds and i've got this strange stereo macro lens uh designed for red cameras sitting on my desk and um i i, I want to keep especially the more unique things mm. forever uh, but the, the workhorse lenses, you know, the, the 24 to 105, the 70 to 200, those are the lenses I think would typically get replaced, mm. uh, when new, newer technology comes uh, along super telephoto lenses that work better with teleconverters, um, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, I guess I'm like, you know, I'm a bit of a pack rat. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, I mean, there, there's merit to like the, like you're saying, the Colsina lenses, I, I think that I mean for me that that retro look is it it can be exciting. I think I'd prefer it on an old camera, but I yeah. I love you know there there are a couple of merits to to using this kind of gear. I think that the main one is probably that if you get something that's new and you you just like the look of it, it's it's going to inspire you to get out. You might you might throw your camera over your shoulder and go for a walk more often than you would without this new piece of lens uh, or, you know, a new piece of kit. Or the other thing with them as well is an older-looking lens, I've found is it, it's more door-opening than relatively new kit. If you walk around town with a, um, a, a brand-new camera around your neck and everything's all modern-looking, nobody thinks anything about it. But if you walk around with an, an old sort of, or, you know, even a, a Leica or even not old, but if it's a Leica or something like this Cosina lenses that are, they look like retro, people will come up and strike up a conversation. And that's often a good way to say, well, would you mind me taking your photo? And then you you get a few bit, bit of extra work from it. And before you know it, it's opening doors for you. Yeah. And so well, I I, you know, what they those. have to do, uh, mm. well, well, I, I don't, <laughs> Nikon did it but they mm. failed with the Nikon uh, DF. Yeah. I want a modern camera that looks like it's got vintage stylings. Like mm. I, if somebody were to make a, I don't know, uh, Canon AE-1 styled modern uh, 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 SLR or mirrorless camera, whatever you want to do, but they, that had that classical feel, mm. uh, I would buy one. Like it just, and then I would put those vintage lenses on and I would be one of the things that I love about film photography mm. really has nothing to do with film. 
Uh, I, and I've, I've come to appreciate that it has to do with the tactile gear that was used in that era that we have evolved away from. Mm. Um, and I figured this out when I realized I still have some exposed slide film sitting in my drawer from two years ago that I never developed uh, because yeah. the act of shooting it was the fun for me. Yeah. Um, I, but I don't want to have to deal with anything else after the fact. <laughs> Yeah, I enjoyed developing. I I, I have a Rolly that uh, um, was. It's only two. It's two years older than me, um, and I, I, I will slap some one hundred and twenty film. You know, it's like the old medium format. I'll put a, a film in there and go out for a walk and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it, I I have all of the chemicals to develop it myself in a, a an incredibly fun little box called a lab box. And so it's not even, I don't even use the bags um, and, you know, the Patterson system. Um, I, I bought that a few years ago. And since the lab box came out, I just bought two lab boxes. You do everything on your table in broad daylight. It doesn't, you know, including unwinding the film and everything. And so it's a lot of fun and, and I enjoy that part. But it, I'm with you as well. The, the shooting, just the, the loading the film and using a film camera has got its own unique sort of, I don't know, nostalgic feel about it. Yeah. Um, so, hey, any camera manufacturer listening, you want to make me a camera? Uh, I'm sure I'm not <laughs> the only one that would appreciate having a really, like, honestly, make it, it would be from a company like Leica because they mm. still have a, a classical uh, type feel to it. But to really just go back and say, okay, take a, a Leica, a Leica three, uh, mm. you know, something of the same vintage of an AE one and make that digital and make mm. it a great camera in terms of the technology inside of it. Uh, but being true to form, you know, throw away the autofocus and anything else that's modern, that's not required at all within this experience. Mm. Um, and yes, there's, I, I, and I'm, I'm sure if I didn't mention it, I would get some emails about it, that there are kits available that can convert those old cameras into digital cameras. Mm. Uh, mm. I'm back is one that we talked about that actually uses a little Raspberry Pi and some mirrors and stuff in order to use the camera in the Raspberry Pi to image a focusing screen where the film uh, should be. Yeah, there's stuff like that out there. It, it does mm. exist. But that's still just kind of a bit of a kludge like mm. nothing really had connected to me with the cameras that i would have wanted to use uh, especially it's uh it's it's my holy grail camera to to find um it's a variant of the uh hasselblad x-pan mm. um which itself was a variant of a fujifilm um uh TX1, not XT1, but TX1, uh, which then Hasselblad, I guess, had some partnership with. It rebranded it, and uh, they, they look almost identical, these two cameras. Mm -hmm. There was a third company that had used it. Um, and if you're unfamiliar, it's a 35 millimeter camera that shoots panoramic uh, scenes. Mm -hmm. It's a fairly wide uh, frame cut on that. But because it's so wide, you could actually take two images at once. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so that it's perfect for stereo, stereo 3D. Uh, Horseman made a stereo 3D version of the X-Pan uh, or whichever camera came first uh, using the same the same body. And it is rare as hen's teeth. I have never seen a single one even <laughs> for sale. Uh, yeah. I don't know if they just didn't sell many of them or if they're just such a coveted item. Um, but if I could get my hands on one of those, mm. I think that would really bring me back into the realm of, of film shooting just for the... <laughs> uh, 
the pure novelty of it, the ease of use, the functionality, but uh, also I, I love stereo 3D stuff. And, mm. and the more of that I can play with, that's just, it brings me right back into it. Anyhow, <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably. my little aside. <laughs> Anybody out there has one of those things, let me know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that kind of winds down the lens talk, unless you had any further points to discuss. Not really, no. Uh, All right. Well, let, let's go into uh, the controversial story of yeah. uh, of the uh, week um, found on Petapixel. India orders online photos critical of pandemic response to be removed. This is written by uh, Jaron Schneider. And I'll just read through a, a, a little bit of this here. Um, uh, Narendra Modi, uh, India's prime minister, has been uh, under harsh criticism internally for his relaxation of restrictions in the country prior to the latest outbreak, uh, including allowing large gatherings with no requirements for physical distancing and ignoring experts who warned him of the risks. Mr. Modi himself held large political rallies during that period. Um, now, what would happen if you were depicting the um, you know, as a photojournalist or a citizen journalist, uh, if you were to be depicting images of uh, the worst of, you know, what this is bringing to India right now, which is they're in a very dire situation. Mm. Um, and for a lot of people, I'm sure that it's very hard to ignore it. Like it's right in front of them. And if you were to take photos of that to try and tell that story, um, would you want your government to have some level of control to silence your voice? Mm -hmm. right you know and, and th they are uh that th th that's the end of it here is that yes india is uh censoring content that paints the government in a bad light mm. you know it's it's a difficult one i think that if the the motives are just to to stop themselves being painted in a bad light then it definitely should be uh, yeah it's it shouldn't be happening it's definitely wrong um but on the other hand, at the moment, India are, as you said, they're in a really bad way. And in some situations, it, it's almost, it's like not peacetime anymore. It's a state of emergency. And at times like this, I think sometimes heavy-handed action by the government is necessary to protect the public. Um, but I, I read through in this article and I thought that the best thing was uh, Twitter's response, which is to they're going to stop people from viewing the, the images that they've been requested to remove, but only those people in India. So anyone outside of India can see them. And with the way they're doing it, it's probably going to be a temporary ban. So they'll say, okay, yeah, while the emergency is, is running, while it's in sort of progress, will stop them stop them from being viewable but as soon as it's over we're going to let them back out and i think that there's kind of that's kind I of i like okay. that balance yeah, yeah. But um, if it's only if it's to protect the people and if it's just to protect the government from being painted in a bad light then they should be being painted in a bad light if everything that's being said is true so we also have to consider that you know all social media platforms uh facebook and instagram twitter uh i mean Th th those are the big ones that come to mind, but uh, where people are really sharing stories and news and, and that type of thing. Mm. Um, they they have uh, their own censorship platforms. I mean, whether it's to prevent nudity or, you know, uh, depictions of crime or mm. you know, what have you. You know, if there's a genocide happening somewhere uh, and those photos 
would obviously be incredibly gruesome and, and honestly terrifying to anybody to see. Um, do I want them to be censored? You know, do I want to be looking at those when I sit down and eat my breakfast? Well, mm. no, I, I don't want to be looking at them at that time, especially, uh, you know, without any warning of something, something just coming across my feed. Mm. Uh, but do I want them to be censored by a government that's trying to hide the fact that they're mm. committing said crimes? Mm. No, I don't. Um, and so it, it's a really tricky line to, uh, to, to walk because, you know, Photography has, since the invention of photography, been a way to communicate the good and the bad of the world. Mm -hmm. um, it has been used as a weapon in terms of uh, reconnaissance and, uh, and data collection against your opponents. Uh, it has been used as a way to celebrate, you know, uh, the accomplishments of mankind on the moon. You know, mm -hmm. it, 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 it is so ingrained into our society that, uh, you know, we see people in a moment of um, of crisis, I, I guess that's the best word to, to use. Uh, and photography is the way that that is captured, uh, especially when there's no language barrier, uh, that mm. needs to be seen. Mm. Um, we all can see, uh, what's going on. And so the fact that in India right now, uh, that those images are being blocked, uh, and, and I hope everybody takes the same uh, approach that Twitter is currently doing, where mm. you block it in India, at least now. And, and I'm really glad that you brought this up. Uh, but it's a free for all afterwards, mm. uh, so long as it meets with whatever Twitter's guidelines for their own internal censorship is. Mm. So, um, but there you have it, uh, the Indian government, which uh, I think it's worth stating that they are not a uh, dictatorship. You know, they, mm. they are, uh, they are elected, you know, it's not like China. Um, mm. And we've had some famous issues with China, with their, uh, the, the great firewall of China, uh, mm. uh, which has existed for at least well, probably 20 years now, mm. uh, censoring information coming in over the internet. Uh, India doesn't have that, or at least they didn't up until now. And so they're kind of encroaching on, on that. Uh, but like you said, it's uh, it, it's a state of emergency, and mm. the rules change with states of emergency. Here mm. in Ontario, um, we have had to come up with a lot of new laws just to overcome certain uh, rights and uh, uh, policies and procedures that no longer apply uh, because there's a sense of urgency. And that mm. doesn't relate to photography. It's like, okay, we, we're out of registered nurses to take care of the sick. So we have to bring them from a neighboring province, mm. but technically they're not registered with the registered nurses association of Ontario. Mm. And thereby you need to pass emergency legislation for them to actually be able to practice in the province. Mm. And so there's all these things going on in a state of emergency and, uh, and yeah, uh, public image, I think is one of the things that should be pretty low on the rung of mm. importance when you're talking about, you know, the public health crisis mm. across the planet. Anyhow, what? It, you know, it, I think a lot of it, uh, here in Japan, we, I mean, our government is proving themselves to be not only weak, but imbecilic. And they they are not able to do anything because of, you know, they well, they, they basically scared the public with what happened during and shortly after World War Two, when they, you know, they, they basically got um, the, the their soldiers fighting um, for a, a like a, a demi or you know not a demigod like almost like a deity in the emperor and it was it all got out of hand and then now they say okay we learned our lesson there we're not going to be that that kind of country anymore and they changed and they put legislation in place that prevents them from doing anything 
um, that would overly control the public, and so they can't lock the, they can't lock us down. And that, in my in my opinion, is ridiculous because at the moment we've got the Olympic coming up in a few months, and all they can do is say, "Please don't go to bars, and please don't go to work, please don't do this, please don't do that." And it's been happening for a year now, and everybody's sick of it. So then, so nobody's listening anymore. So if yep. they ha- if they were strong enough to say, okay, well, we're going to actually we're going to put a law in place, and we're going to say you you be fined if you go out of your house for the next three weeks or whatever, like most other companies countries have done, and they they're not able to do it because of the, because of that. And so I think a lack of strength in times like this is almost as damaging. So it's yeah. Well, in, in my <laughs> in my uh, home uh, town here, well, that I mean, I was born and raised in Sudbury. I, I live in in Barrie now, but mm. um, in Barrie, in the past few weeks, we've had political rallies mm. um, from uh, I don't know what word I could used to describe these people worse than foolish asinine i think is a good word mm. um where they were uh holding anti-lockdown rallies uh in you got this open air amphitheater uh, down by our waterfront and uh by the looks of it hundreds of people in attendance and uh like single digit numbers of fines handed out by the police mm. and i just i i feel kind of let down by that as well you know mm. it, it we're, we are in a crisis and uh, i have been rather stoic through through all of this mm. um and uh you know we're at a peak right now where things are so bad mm. that um uh, you know w- one of my wife's uh, former colleagues just had a double lung transplant i mean oh, and, and thankfully they were able to have that operation done i know this episode's getting rather personal but hey we're here um but uh, they were able to get it done just in the nick of time because a uh, day or two afterwards, they canceled all uh, mm. non-emergency surgeries. And that mm. includes cancer surgeries, you know, mm. organ transplants, etc. Um, and so, yeah, I, if, if some of this imagery uh, were necessary to shock people, sort mm. of like, you know, they, they put really gross images on the packets of cigarettes, cig- cigarettes yeah, right? Yeah, you yeah. know, of these like awful tumors and things. Yeah. I, I, nobody wants to look at that, but they're there for a reason to mm. scare people to hopefully mm. change their mind. And you know what? I don't know if it's effective, but I'm glad they're at least trying to do that. Mm. Um, anyway. Again, the power of photography. The power of photography uh, in hand. Uh, well, we're talking about, you know, mistakes being made and, and all that. That kind of leads into the next story. But I just remembered something. Uh, you mentioned World War II. Isn't Japan and Russia still technically at war in World War II? Because there's like some island or, uh, or, or two islands that are, are north of Japan that mm. is contested territory. And neither yeah. country has decided that, that mm. they want to give it up. Well, um, so it's the Kuril Islands, um, where I photographed the sea eagles in a, on the Shiritoko Peninsula, which is like the horn shape that comes off the, the um, northeastern side of Hokkaido, the northern island. Um, the, from there, there's four more islands that stretch off into up through the Sea of Ohotsuku and uh, towards – they're basically heading towards Alaska. Um, and – while Japan was um, struggling to sort of figure out what what had happened after, after they were bombed with the the, the a bombs, uh, Russia came in and took those islands, and they're still there. And of course, Japan's saying, "Well, they're actually they're our islands, and we want them back." But Russia's basically got they, they've got people living there now and everything, 
Um, and so it's, I mean, I still call them, um, you know, Japan. Everyone here believes that they're, Japan, they're the Japanese islands, but nobody's got a right to go. Occasionally, we'll have people visit. Um, but yeah, there, there's, you're right. Essentially, there's still that conflict there. And it's, uh, it's something that I wish would be fixed. I'd love to go well, to the Carolinas and photograph. I, I think that we are not the right people to fix such problems. Um, <laughs> so we should move on to discussing our own mistakes, which is exactly. the next story. Um, and that was uh, from F-Stoppers. I found an interesting uh, video. Uh, what was your most embarrassing photo shoot mistake? Uh, video by uh, Kaylee June. And, uh, you know, I think we've all made mistakes as, as artists, but also as mm. business people too. Uh, I remember one time, I, I was just going to go out and shoot some waterfalls, but I wanted to clean my camera sensor first. Mm. And so I did that and, and I'm uh, cleaning it. And no problem. I put the camera in the bag and I go out to the, uh, to the photo shoot uh, and I'm walking around finding a good spot and I sit down and my camera is burning hot. Mm. I forgot to turn it off after uh. I uh, completed the, uh, the sensor cleaning and my battery had 5% battery life left. Uh, which is, th this is about as bad as the classic mistake of forgetting your battery, uh, mm. just about. But I was actually surprised as to how much energy the camera spent doing nothing at all. You, you, um, know, what, you know what? It wasn't doing nothing at all. You'd ha you'd, it was in half pressed. You'd got something pressing the shutter button halfway down. And I've had the same thing happen. And the only thing that I can, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying like, that's no, no. what happened. But what, what, I, I, what I had done is that it was still in sensor cleaning mode. Like, cause you have to turn it oh, off okay. after you're done okay. cleaning the camera sensor. And so it was in that mode with the mirror yeah. locked up and the, and the shutters open. Uh, so it was functionally doing nothing. It was just I waiting see. for me yeah. to finish the, uh, the maintenance on, on the camera. Mm. Um, but I guess it was not engineered in such a way that that was expected to, you know, mm. last for an hour. I, uh, I think they, I think they will automatically drop down after a certain time now. But I see what they're saying. I've done the same thing though, and with me, it was, it was literally, I, I left it on, put it in my bag, left on, and there's something in the bag. The probably the protective sort of dividers was actually pressing against the uh, the, the shutter button. And it was, it must have been half pressed all the time. And it was same thing. It was red hot when I got it out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's crazy. You'd think there'd be more. I mean, the, of course, with the R5, the video causing it to get really hot. Right. They've, they've built in uh, stops for that that were driving everybody crazy when they brought the R5 out. But uh, that's a different story. <laughs> have you, have you ever made any mistakes on the business side of things? You know, I, I was thinking about this. I, I've, I've got a couple, one very similar to the person that um, wrote the article wherein uh, it wasn't 100% my fault, but it was a good lesson learned in that I was I was going somewhere to do a job. It was a relatively important, well, a very important job. It was one of my first commercial assignments. And because of that, I had Canon clean the sensors before I took it up there. And what I didn't realize is that, and Canon was, were wrong to do this, but when they check to see if they've got all of the dust, they put it in JPEG mode for some crazy reason. Like Canon can't can't get a RAW off and take a look at a RAW image, but they put it in JPEG mode and they left it in JPEG mode. So I got oh, to no. my assignment. Uh, luckily, I was shooting for myself for the first morning and I realized before the actual assignment that I was in JPEG mode. 
but I still lost the morning's beautiful photos because they were all like heavily crunched up JPEGs. So right. I did the same thing as the the uh, the person that wrote the article. I started to check all of that every time I shoot now. Um, but the other one I, was actually a cultural thing. Um, I recalled a number of years ago, I, I was doing portrait shoots. I, I rented a, a really nice outdoor studio and well, I had a number of families come along and we did like half an hour with each of them doing portrait sessions. And in one of them, it was a young, a young man and his wife and their young daughter. She was probably three years old, three or four years old. And I, I heard that I knew that the, the guy who, of, the, of the family was from an area of Japan that was relatively like rough. It was, they, they, they were, it's a rough sort of port town. And so I was having a jibe with him, trying to get sort of a bit of lighthearted smiling going in there about how, how rough his town is and, you know, and how he's probably one of these rough. And later on, he came to me and said, I was really embarrassed by the fact that you were talking about my town and that in front of my daughter. And I'm, I'm like, I, I thought, oh, you idiot, me, you know, not him. I thought, <laughs> that, you know, how insensitive that was. And so for me, that was a big sort of, cultural thing as well as just a martin get your foot out of your mouth um thing because you have to be careful when you're talking about stuff like that and so i learned a good lesson there as well i, I don't like upsetting people and i'd, I'd obviously upset him with my light-hearted banter that was devi- designed to get the sort of smiling and stuff like that so I'm, yeah I'm i i'm like you i'm i'm a people person uh, and, and like I, I like to make friends not enemies but mm. um sometimes you know with with my work um people steal my work right they'll they'll oh, infringe yeah. on my copyright and uh you know for a lot of personal stuff or not overtly commercial stuff um i'll send a takedown notice uh, mm. to facebook or you know wherever it's been posted um if it's on a website, uh, I will look up who the hosting provider is and send a takedown notice to them. Like I, I don't personally engage with these people. I just send the legal form, um, mm-hmm. and then it just it goes away. And, and part of the reason is because there's just so many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, like every year, I send an, the number of takedown notices that I send is in the four digits. It's it's over yeah. a thousand. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so. And the, the lawyers take the commercial ones. And so and there's a revenue stream from that, um, it, which is, again, it's unfortunate. I'd rather have somebody call me and say, hey, I'd love to license this image. Can mm. I do so? And and for me to say pleasure doing business with you afterwards with, mm. well, I'm not really shaking people's hands these days, but mm. with the, uh, the assumption of that mutual respect. And mm. uh, sometimes I get some really vitriolic commentary coming back at me, especially mm. from people that took my image and posted it on their personal pages. Mm. Um, uh, and then uh, it's not my responsibility for this, but uh, Facebook, if uh, and, and I'm sure it's true of other platforms, if you infringe on copyrights numerous times and, and have that uh, complaint filed against you more than once, they'll mm. lock your account, mm. right? Uh, so they'll shut you down. They'll put you in uh, Facebook jail for a number of days, or sometimes they'll just outright, you know, lock you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't have control over that. Mm. Uh, I'm just sending my takedown notices. And so mm. when somebody sends me some really um, uh, angered commentary about how I've destroyed their social life, it's like, well, no, I 
I did nothing. I mean, you yeah, took you something from me. <laughs> yeah. You stole my photo and I just filled out a form. And if it happened to be your third strike because of other uh, transgressions, well, I mean, I, you it's know what? It's still not it, my problem. <laughs> it's still not my problem. And in that scenario, I'll say, okay, you want to pay a, a retroactive license for the work. I'm not going to retract my very legitimate claim of copyright, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. if you want to pay me some money to retroactively mm-hmm. license the image so that I can then retract the claim, then we're talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's often met with even more vitriol uh, mm. and uh, some choice words that I won't utter on on this particular <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know what? That's that's kind of doing business in a in a backwards kind of way, and I don't mm. like to do that. But mm. you know, you, you got to defend your copyrights uh, as soon as you discover that somebody is violating them, mm. and yeah. that's just part of the game. Uh, one time, though, uh, I I don't want to say I made an enemy, but I definitely didn't get paid for a job, uh, and it's partly because I didn't ask uh, at the sort of negotiating stage, um, you know, what what do you want this job to cost you? Or like, mm. uh, I didn't say, well, it's going to cost you this amount. Like, I didn't ask what the budget was or anything. Mm. Um, and it was for a um, uh, a local sporting team. And they wanted me to uh, to photograph uh, the, uh, the arena where they play um, with, you know, the cheering crowds and the players playing and all this stuff. Uh, and so I did, but you know, that requires, uh, you know, location scouting going around during a, a practice and finding the best spot to take the image that they're looking for and, uh, you know, experiment with exposure and, and lens choices. And so you, you can spend a couple of hours doing that and then mm-hmm. going to, um, an actual, uh, game that's being played and, uh, making sure that you're in that proper location and that everything is perfect. And then, uh, you know, double and triple checking everything as you go to make sure that uh, at, at the end I got the, the game winning event and everybody was cheering and it was wonderful, perfect, beautiful. Um, and I spent then, um, uh, I, I this was at the time where dynamic range and cameras were not great mm. i mean mm. um i think it was with a 5d mark ii or so um mm. and so i shot it uh, as an hdr uh, image uh, in order to recover some of the shadows and highlights within that and manually combining those images when that was only a 3.9 frames per second camera body so that there's a bit of a delay between the shots and the entire thing is in motion right mm. all the people moving it so manually masking in everything it took another couple of hours of work mm. um and I, I showed it to them. And they absolutely loved it. And I billed it out at $800. Mm. And they just balked at that number. Uh, mm. And they, to this day, that image has never been used. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. And I didn't think that number was... Uh, it's, not, it's not overly high. It's not overly high for the amount of work that was required mm. to, to do that. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a large organization. It, it's mm. not like they didn't have the money. They just mm. chose that the work was not worth it. Mm. And that was a, a big insult for me. And, and lesson learned, mm. always put the prices up front, uh, yeah. and, yeah. and understand exactly where the client's budget is going to be at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one other mistake that, that I made, um, and I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, is, is I uh, broke my camera's shutter by trying to re-engineer my, my Leica Stemar Stereo 3D lens uh, because it has a septum that extends into the camera body itself by a small amount, and I engineered it wrong. 
Um, mm. yeah, I had to redesign it from the original uh, in order for it to fit in the camera, and it fits just fine. But I didn't properly measure the clearance for the shutter. <laughs> from the mirror. And so the shutter. <laughs> oh, the shutter. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, because it's a mirrorless camera. Now, I see. But, uh, but uh, so it would work, but the shutter would rub against it. Hmm. And after enough of that wearing, uh, you know, by using it for a couple of weeks, I, I mangled the shutter in the camera and I had to <laughs> get that repaired and then re-engineer oh, my, my vintage lens to <laughs> properly fit. So uh, yeah, mistakes are made. I can, I can look back at that now and, and laugh about it, but that was a, that was a costly one. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. That, that one cost me, uh, well, just about as much as I would have made from that shoot that I never got mm. paid for. Uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into our final story. But before we do, where can people find you online, Martin? Are you still doing your podcast? Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I'm on episode 738, I think it is, this That's week. insane. Um, <laughs> and I, everything my tours my my print store everything it's all uh, all linked from the menu at martinbaileyphotography.com and that link will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com if you're feeling lazy and you don't want to figure out how to spell martin's name which is not really that hard at all far easier than mine um so martinbaileyphotography.com thanks for being here again martin um final story uh this is a a weird one at least on the surface um from Petapixel, Leica partners with JMGO to produce the O1 Pro Home Theater projector. Mm. Now, I've never heard of this company, JMGO, before. Maybe they're just not available in my market. I don't know if they're available in the Japanese market, uh, mm. Martin. I, I want your opinions on that. But, uh, but uh, they announced that they were teaming up in 2020, and uh, this is the first product of that partnership, which is an ultra-short throw uh, projector. And this is... Uh, actually quite an important development because uh, projectors, when we think about them, like in the movie theater or even a home theater, um, there's a pretty big distance between the screen and where the projector is. And that, mm. that's the the throw, that the ability for the, the image to be projected and sent out to fill that size of a space. And there's always been, uh, you know, short throw projectors that can limit that range, but effectively you need wide angle optics uh, in order to make that work. And uh, wide angle optics behave differently and they need some precision engineering and, and what have you in order for it to, uh, to, to do the job well, you know, corner to corner sharpness, just as we would have for our cameras. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can get with this device um, an 80 inch screen 80 inches from having the projector only 6.5 inches away from where it's being projected. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, if you want to get 18.4 inches away, you can have a 150 inch screen, which <laughs> is also quite ridiculous in terms it's of the ability. It's a foot and a half, isn't it? It's crazy. Uh, it, exactly. Uh, so that, that's, that's neat. Uh, and I mm. guess for small spaces where you want to, you don't have room for a whole uh, entertainment system, uh, but you've got a wall. Uh, you know, this, this would be the perfect, um, solution, especially, you know, if you've got, uh, a, a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, apartment dwellers, uh, people that are, you know, stuck in condo buildings that don't really have, uh, that much space. And you're always mm -hmm. trying to play the minimalist effect. And I've seen some really cool designs for furniture that maximize that type of space. Mm. Um, now you can do that with a projector. What are your thoughts? Mm. I, things like this, are they're really interesting to me as well. And I, I can see a, a point, or I could see a point 
uh, where I'd do away with the TV altogether. And then you'd have nothing on the wall when you're, you know, just have maybe a pull down screen and you give you, give your whole room a little bit more sort of an airy feel while you're not watching TV. But then, um, slam this on it, it would literally in my home, it would sit on the, with that throw distance, it would, it would sit on the, um, the cabinet that my current TV is sitting on. So I'd just have some okay. speakers on there and it would, it would still give me a, a, an image larger than my current TV. But the problem with these projectors that I've found that is always, uh, and I, I don't know if they if they are, have overcome this with this projector, but projectors are generally very noisy. They, they have, yeah. they generate a lot of heat. So that a lot of the time they need a, a decent sized fan in them. And I don't know if they've overcome that here, but if every time you turn the T essentially in my little plan that I just mentioned, if I, if every time I turn the TV on, the first thing you hear is, you know, and the fan cranking up, <laughs> then it's going to, it's going to make everything seem a little bit, uh, you know, not as, not as cool as it could be. Yeah. You know, I've got a, a Canon projector, um, one of their, there's a couple of different projection technologies, uh, DLP, uh, which uses like a spinning disc to, to display all the colors. But I always see like a rainbow pattern when my eyes dart across a DLP projector and it just annoys mm. the heck out of me. Mm. Uh, so Canon has a different technology that does a proper RGB, uh, you know, configuration. And it works and works well, uh, you know, when I was doing uh, camera club presentations or workshops here, I would bring it along and I'd have it all color calibrated and everything mm. would be perfect. Mm. Um, but when you get smaller, uh, the heat has less room to go. And like you mentioned, the fan is going to get a little bit more whirring inside and smaller fans have a higher pitched noise. So, mm, uh, yeah. that, that could be problematic. There's nothing in this that shows me exactly how big the device is, but if it's designed to sit, you know, at maximum a foot and a half away from the wall, it's probably not very big itself. Mm. So that's a very valid, uh, you know, point of concern. Um, so, uh, just to, to wind down the story, Leica and JMGO state that the O1 Pro is just the first of several products that will be both co-branded and co-engineered moving forward. It appears that JMGO is planning on launching the O1 series of projectors, which will include one capable of 4K resolution on Indiegogo in the near future. Now, mm. that, that, that to me is interesting because the smaller ones, they, it's only 1080p. Now, one of the options will be uh, 4K. Mm. I don't want to watch 1080p content on a 150-inch screen. No. I mean, uh, it just it seems like there's a bit of a, a mismatch there. But mm. okay, uh, I guess that's a partnership that Leica making uh, precision and niche manual focus optics, which is what they're known for. Um, mm. They can do well with. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it'll. I'm sure it'll sell well for them. Yeah, you got that even on the uh, the post that you're linking to. In the marketing there, it's got that little red circle with the the classic Leica logo in there, and it's just people. Some people will just throw money at that logo, so I'm oh, yeah. sure it'll sell well for them. And you yep. got to, I mean, I I, had, I admit I'm not being overly sarcastic here. I mean that I I love the I don't own a Leica, but if I had enough money, oh boy, would I like one. Yeah, uh, well, and there's no uh, as as far as we can tell. Uh, I, I don't recall seeing pricing information. I'm just giving this another look through. And as soon as you have that, like a red dot, uh, mm. generally, you know, you're buying 
part of the brand as well as the engineering. Mm. And uh, so you can expect it to have a price premium just based on that brand. One would expect anyhow, if like yeah. stays true to form. Mm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's uh, that winds down the stories, but we still have our picks of the week to get to. Um, why, don't, why don't you go first, Martin? Okay, well, I, I've actually piggybacked on yours. I know, um, that's I, why I, <laughs> I'm asking you to I go first because they kind of tie in together. I had a, I had something that I was going to talk about, but I'm sort of, I'm, I'm going to pull back on that one because I can only find them in Japan and I don't want to talk about something that uh, people couldn't order. Um, so I, I loved the idea of what you are going to pick. <laughs> and so... I did something, uh, you know, I went, uh, looked at, I, ha I don't own one of these, but I do own the friction pens. And basically what they are is a, a almost like a, uh, it's a notebook which you write in and it comes with a with an iPhone or an Android app where you, you scan the page and it will archive it for you. But basically you, once you've scanned your page, you wipe it clean and start again. And so these pages are like a, a slightly plasticky feeling page. The notebook has like 50 pages in it. So you can write on lots of pages. Say if you were going on a, uh, a tra you know, using it as a travel uh, log, but then you come back, scan all of your pages in and wipe it clean and start again. And these pages are apparently good for using for up to a thousand times. So they're saying, you know, you, you could, this could be the last notebook you ever have to buy. Because she's the you, rocket book, rocket yeah. book, smart, reusable notebook. Yeah. And so I, I like the idea of having everything that you've written go into the cloud easily. You, you just put a checkbox in, in the, on the page, which cloud account you want it to be sent to. You can set up multiple accounts. It just sends it for you, um, archives it, wipe it clean. Maybe after checking that it's gone into the, into the, uh, into the cloud, but um, yeah, I, I just like the, I like the idea of that. Um, so sorry for half stealing your pick. No, Don. no. Well, <laughs> this is actually, the, the, this is great because the ideas that we have are to kind of be more organized, right? Mm. I mean, when I go on a trip and I'm so looking forward to traveling again, uh, when the time <laughs> is right, but, uh, the, the idea of, of me sorting out my, my camera bag, or I've got like a messenger bag that I can put camera gear and what other accoutrements, um, in there. When I get back from that trip and I pull everything out, there's just like random receipts, scribbled pieces of paper on like, mm -hmm. or even backs of napkins that have writing on it. And, mm. Uh, and to sort all of that stuff out in a meaningful way just doesn't usually work. Random business cards that I've received from people and I kind of forget who that was and why mm. I have that card. Uh, and then I keep it. And then a year later, I go through and I, I have no idea who that person still is. Um, but this uh, chaotic structure of just bits and pieces of information, uh, I found a solution to that. And that is with a, uh, a traveler's notebook passport. And it's, I mean, it's roughly the size of a, of a passport mm. and, uh, it just, it has a nice leather, uh, outer shell to it. Mm. And, uh, it just, it, it's a notebook yeah. you can write into it. Um, but it has other little things that they've added on, uh, like there is a business card holder piece, a uh, little plastic shell. Um, there is a little manila folder that you can just kind of tuck little receipts and, and what have mm. you in just mm. to keep everything organized in one place that makes a lot of sense, mm. um, 
And, uh, you know, they, they've done pretty good marketing this thing because they got a bunch of my money for all these little inserts and, and what have you uh, for a little sketchbook and a lined book. And you can get one without the lines or a grid or what have you. But mm. um, uh, and a little pen holder on the side. So all I would have to do, especially if, you know, I'm traveling in, in a foreign country and I'm making notes about, you know, where a, a photo might have been taken or to get somebody's contact information or mm. the name of a particular restaurant. Uh, yes, I can take photos of all of that stuff, but I'm mm. going to forget exactly what those photos even mean mm. if there's no context to why they existed in a mm. camera roll uh, from two years ago. Uh, but yeah, so this is the Traveler's Notebook Passport. Mm. And uh, not terribly expensive. Uh, I mean, it does get that way when you buy all the little bits and pieces. They charge extra for the little pen holder loop, which... Well, I begrudgingly also paid for. So, um, but, <laughs> but if you, if you want to keep yourself organized, it's actually a nice little handy thing and it looks good and it feels good and it fits nicely in a camera bag along with all of my other things, hopefully to stay a bit more organized this next time. You know, that that's a big part of it. I, I love that. I almost ordered one when I saw that when you sent the link yesterday, I'm like, I was on Amazon. I was thinking, okay, I need one of these. I need one of these. Um, I didn't get one just yet. And I, I might get one, one of those instead of the rocket book. I'm still, still undecided, but it's, it's $58 Canadian anyhow. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, but that, that's just for the, the main book. And then, you know, you're going to end up paying, you know, $6 for a refill of a different type of paper, or mm. I forget how much the, the pen loop cost, but uh, mm. my have been 10 or 20 dollars um and uh the thing is it will also um like it it will scratch and and scuff pretty easily but i mean that that, that's good with it (laughs) but well it's gonna develop its own patina right and and so that that's part of the nature of how these things work you made a nasty big nasty scratch on the back there (laughs) yeah only martin saw that but uh but hey it's gonna go away with a whole bunch of others and all i did was just run my fingernail uh over it and not like even like trying to scratch it like the top uh and but they 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 are a very nice looking um notebook i i'm very tempted well uh, i'm glad to uh, tempt you to spend money on things that you really don't need um (laughs) (laughs) such is the nature of the picks of the week on this podcast uh and that brings us to the end of another episode martin thank you so much for being here um and again people can find you at martin bailey photography uh, com. Are, are you planning any workshops for once the pandemic subsides Oh, I've all, I've got them planned. I've got you know, most of them are full already, but um, that's because we had to shift a lot of people out from this year. Um, I haven't actually been able to hold a workshop for um, over a year now. Uh, Namibia this summer is cancelled. I just hope that the Japanese government can get their acts together in time to save next winter's uh, tours here. But... Um, I, they're, they're taught, they're, you know, they're in the, everything is up to date. So if you look under the tours menu on my website, uh, everything that is there, it, that it tells you whether they're full or whether they're still openings or not right on that page. So yeah, check that out if, if anyone's interested, but, uh, Perfect. Pl- plenty, but plenty ready, ready to go. Just got to wait, wait on the pandemic. Exactly. I hear you. Uh, oh, and one final thing, uh, people might be asking, uh, Don, where's your book? Uh, Martin mentioned it earlier that he's taken a look through it. Well, Martin took a look at the ebook version, which is finished. The physical book uh, is on the press this week, and it's shipping to me. It might even be on a truck right now. Uh, and I get it next week and start sending them out to everybody. So thank you to those that have pre-ordered uh, or uh, pledged for a copy. 
of that book. It's been a long time coming and it is just about on my doorstep and soon to be yours. So there's your little book update. And, and I can I can tell everybody that's going to get a copy uh, or might is thinking of getting a copy that it's one of the best books I've written. written. One of the best <laughs> books I've read in a long time. You've made a beautiful job of it. It's visually and intellectually very stimulating so oh, thank I, you I, I appreciate the compliments on that and uh, hopefully everybody else will enjoy it too uh, that's it for us uh, thank you for listening to this episode of photo geek weekly and at least where i am and it sounds like where you are too martin for now it's still time to stay in and shoot <laughs>